Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. In short, the practice of smoking or fumigating people was thought to eradicate disease, namely smallpox. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Katie Turner Getty, talking about disease in the American Revolution and the practice of smoking an infected patient. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate. Publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and The Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode we have a returning guest, Journal of the American Revolution contributor and one of our editors, Katie Turner Getty, discussing a field that Quite frankly, she is one of the leaders in infectious disease during the American Revolution. Katie always gives us a lot to think about whenever she comes on the show and whenever she writes articles for the Journal of the American Revolution. Of course, you can find them all at www.allthingsliberty.com. But I got to tell you, today, it's going to be a weird one. Uh, Katie reveals in her latest article, uh, the practice in the 18th century known as smoking a patient. Uh, That is to say, when a person has smallpox, or when there's a fear of smallpox spreading, uh, individuals would be locked in tiny wooden boxes or sheds. Uh, A fire would be lit in the shed with them, and they would let smoke roll over their bodies in a way to cleanse them. Now, of course... This is nonsense. And it's really, you know, I have a really hard time believing that a brilliant physician of the 18th century would think this would actually work. I mean, you know, today we laugh at these things, but these people did believe in it. Uh, And the idea is with enough rolling smoke, a person can be happy and healthy and most importantly, disease free from the great plague of the 18th century, smallpox. Now, I have a smoker. I make my own bacon and and briskets. And I know that to smoke a piece of meat, it needs to be between 230 degrees and 250 degrees Fahrenheit to be effective. I don't know at what temperature you smoke a person, uh, but maybe we'll find out from Katie tonight. So uh, without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Katie Turner Getty. Katie Turner Getty, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Remind us about your background. Sure. I grew up in the Boston area, and I attended Bunker Hill Community College, which, as you can probably guess, is located in Charlestown, Massachusetts, where the Battle of Bunker Hill occurred. I was a history major at Wellesley College, where I focused on Revolutionary America, And then I earned my law degree at night while working full-time during the day, 
and now I'm a frequent contributor to Journal of the American Revolution, and I'm lucky enough to be on their editorial team. What first drew your interest into this particular topic? So the topic of smoking and smoking people in particular is definitely kind of an unusual topic, but I became really fascinated by it. In short, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit more in detail later, but the practice of smoking or fumigating people was thought to eradicate disease, namely smallpox. And I first came upon it when I was doing a lot of research on the siege of Boston, namely the civilian exodus that occurred during the summer of 1775 when American forces had locked up the British on the Boston Peninsula. And during this time, one of the ways Bostonians were escaping the city as it was under siege was via Winnesemet Ferry. And that was a water ferry that ran across Boston Harbor between Boston and a place called Winnesemet in Chelsea. And just a really interesting side note about Winnesemet Ferry is that its first year of operation was, I think, around 1631 or maybe 1632. So by the time of the siege of Boston, this ferry had been operating for about 140 years. And it didn't stop operating until 1917. So it just, that alone um, is very interesting. It's kind of an interesting place. But anyway, um, during the siege of Boston, two or three companies of Continental soldiers were stationed at Chelsea. And they, along with a committee that was dispatched by the Provincial Congress, were trying to manage all of these displaced persons who were, who were arriving by ferry from Boston. And the issue was that both the army and the committee had concerns about allowing all of these people to just pass on through into the countryside, into the surrounding area from Chelsea, and start just moving around freely. And the reason was because these people could be really sick. They could be carrying disease and they could potentially spread it as they traveled. So the Bostonians at Winnesemet and at another place called Point Shirley were smoked. And it was a coordinated effort by the army and the committee to attempt to kind of preemptively stop the spread of disease. Boston was a really sick place during this time, and the possibility of these displaced persons carrying smallpox out into the countryside or anywhere near the Continental Army encampment was very alarming. Talk about the unique threat of smallpox during the 18th century. Sure, and Thankfully, it's considered eradicated today, but needless to say, smallpox was a great terror throughout history. It was a horribly painful, disfiguring, contagious disease with a high mortality rate. And at the time of the revolution, people were aware of the possibilities of, of inoculation. And this is when an incision would be purposefully made in the flesh and smallpox matter uh, from the 
disease pustules of another individual would be loaded into the incision and then bound up. And that way, the disease would be purposefully transmitted. But the hope was you'd get the disease favorably, that you'd live through it. Because if you did, you were immune for life, uh, immune from, to smallpox for life. But inoculation was considered very controversial because if it wasn't carefully controlled and managed, then it could cause a really bad outbreak. So the threat of smallpox was definitely a consideration for Washington's army starting from early in the siege. There was not generally, from my understanding, widespread immunity to smallpox in the army. The American men were in general um, from the more healthy countryside. They had not necessarily been exposed to it. There had not been mass inoculations yet. And so protecting the soldiers from smallpox was a priority. They wanted to keep smallpox at bay. And they did this, or they thought they did this, by smoking people. (laughs) What is meant by smoking a patient? Well, I went back a little bit into some 18th century encyclopedias and medical books, and they refer to smoking as a tradition, like a well-known tradition rooted, they said, in the ancient records of physic. So how ancient it was, how ancient the practice was, I can't say, but in Dr. James Lynn's 1774 dissertation on fevers and infections, which I consulted, he said that, and I pulled this quote, a judicious and proper application of fire and smoke is the true means appropriated for the destruction and utter distinction of the most malignant sources of disease. So ships that had disease outbreaks were commonly fumigated with fire and smoke and houses um, where someone died from smallpox would be smoked. I came across some records in Boston where in the cases of someone dying in a house from smallpox, the body would be wrapped up in a sheet that had been smeared with pine tar and the body would be removed and then the rooms would be smoked in an effort to disinfect them. And with regard to how common it was, I've seen references to smokehouses in the town records of a few Massachusetts towns. Now that I'm kind of sensitized to it, even when I haven't been looking for it, sometimes I kind of catch a glimpse of a smokehouse being erected. Uh, Later in 1778, Chelsea voted to erect a smokehouse at Winnesemet Ferry, which probably seemed like a really good idea at the time, considering all of the people that traveled across Winnesemet Ferry, going from Boston to Chelsea, and then to the, the whole Massachusetts North Shore beyond. Um, there is definitely a smokehouse at the gate to Marblehead, which we'll talk about later. I saw a reference to one in Medford, Massachusetts, one in Malden, and these are all towns like right near the, in eastern Massachusetts, somewhat in the Boston area. So at least here, it seems like it was a common enough practice for towns to have a smokehouse, maybe on a main road or at a town gate. Um, the idea being that smoking a traveler would render him free from infection and safe. He, he would be safe 
to enter the town. Could you maybe walk us through the particular process of smoking a person? Yeah, I can try. Um, So the thought was that by fumigating people and by burning certain materials that were thought to possess disinfecting property, any disease that was clinging to the person would be neutralized and the person would be rendered disease-free and they would be safe to travel, to circulate through the country, interact with people, enter towns without spreading smallpox. So if you think of like the refugees who who were fleeing Boston, the civilians that were escaping Boston during the siege, um, they would be moving through the countryside and they would be, or say entering Winnesemet or the Roxbury lines, and there would be some type of structure referred to as a smokehouse. And it seems to be described as similar to a sentry box, or I kind of picture like a modern backyard shed or a structure like that. Um, But the smokehouse was not intended, you know, for meat or for anything like that. It was intended for people. And a fire would be lit in it. It would be either a charcoal or a wood fire and some type of material thought to possess disinfecting properties would be added to it. So typically it seems to, to have been brimstone, which is sulfur. So brimstone would be added to the fire. I often came, not often, um, accounts of smoking seem kind of few and far between, but I've come across a few. Um, Tobacco was sometimes used. Tobacco was thought to have some type of like healthful benefits. Frankincense was used or even something called oakum which I did not know what that was. And I thought it would turn out to be like some type of fragrant wood, but it's rope. I think it's rope, like an unraveled rope dipped in pine tar and used in shipbuilding. So whatever disinfecting material they chose would be placed on the fire. The people would be stuffed into the box. The door would be shut behind them. And then the smokehouse would fill with fumes and the people would be fumigated. So they would stand there or maybe walk around if there was room. And the smoke and the fumes would, in theory, penetrate or saturate their clothing and their bodies and destroy any disease that they carried. Massachusetts will be flooded with refugees uh, throughout the American Revolution, uh, a breeding ground for a lot of very bad things, including disease. Uh, Tell us some of the more interesting cases you found in your research? Oh, sure. There were um, two, at least two, kind of eye-catching accounts of smoking during the siege. And one of them is from the perspective of a three-year-old who got smoked. And um, shout out to J.L. Bell of the Boston 1775 blog who called my attention to this account. But this three-year-old boy was Josiah Quincy, and he was the son of the famous Josiah Quincy, the patriot and the attorney. Um, Josiah Quincy, the father, by the way, died in April of 1775 on board ship 
um, he was returning from a trip to England where he was trying to gain support uh, for the Patriot cause. And he had been extremely ill. He dies in April of 1775 within sight of the Massachusetts shore and ends up missing everything. And that's just kind of a, a source of frustration to me in general. Um, but at some point during the siege, his widow decides to take their three-year-old son, Josiah, and leave Boston with some family members. So they got into a carriage and they left Boston and headed toward Roxbury via the only land route out of town. So at this time, Boston is this skinny peninsula and there's only one land route in and out. So at the border between Boston and Roxbury, a smokehouse was set up. And anyone leaving Boston had to be smoked before they moved through the countryside. So decades later, Josiah, as an adult, recalled being three years old and having to enter this sentry box type structure um, inside of which was a brimstone fire. And he remembered having to walk around inside the smokehouse and getting fumigated by the smoke. And then another really interesting one was that in December of 1775, eight men escaped Boston by boat. And just like everyone else, it seems they came right to Winnesimit in Chelsea, right across the harbor. And they were met there by the Continental Soldiers and by the committee that the Provincial Congress had sent. And again, they were responsible for kind of managing these people that were landing from Boston. So one of these men who had escaped was apparently really eager to reconnect with Major Thomas Mifflin, who he had previously served under. But Major Mifflin at this time was quartermaster general of the Continental Army, and he was headquartered in Cambridge in the heart of the army. And it seems unbelievable to me um, with my, you know, 21st century perspective, but these men were smoked by the committee and they were allowed to just move into the countryside. And so for all we know, they simply walked right into Cambridge looking for Major Mifflin. And this is December of 1775. Smallpox is prevailing more and more. It's flaring up in Boston more. It's becoming more of a threat. And despite everyone trying to protect the army from smallpox and how the, uh, the, the health of the army is of paramount importance, they just kind of let these men pass after being smoked. And it's just kind of mind-boggling to me, but I guess it sort of shows the trust they had in the purification or the thought of the, the purification power that the smoke possessed. George Washington wrote a lot. Anyone who studies the American Revolution knows that when you read his letters and his papers during the war, the man had a lot on his plate, and he, he wrote about them quite frequently, uh, smallpox included. What did, what did George Washington say about smallpox during the war? Since taking command at Cambridge, Washington was very mindful of the threat that smallpox posed to his army, and its potential for destruction was never far from his mind. 
And when he first arrived at Cambridge, he he immediately put protocols into place to help prevent the spread of smallpox within the army, such as he banned fishing at a lake which was near a, a local smallpox hospital to reduce the risk of disease being communicated. And even earlier, um, back on July 2nd, an order had issued that inspections take place. And if any men exhibit symptoms of smallpox, that they be immediately removed from the other men. Um, so far, they had managed, they had really managed to keep a handle on it. Um, but, but again, its potential to decimate the army was in General Washington's mind, because by December, he was saying, if we escape the smallpox in this camp in the country roundabout, it will be miraculous. Talk about the story of Ashley Bowen. Yes, Ashley Bowen is a very memorable character. He lived in Marblehead, Massachusetts, his whole life. And he was the occasional operator of the Marblehead Smokehouse. So a particular incident occurred in September of 1792. So it's a little while after the revolution ended, but it's just such a great glimpse of the smoking process and how it could go awry. Um, And it's a great glimpse of Ashley's industriousness as a smoker that I did want to include it in my article. Um, In 1792, according to John Blake's book, The um, Public Health in the Town of Boston, there were massive smallpox inoculations occurring in Boston in September of 1792. Thousands upon thousands of people were inoculated. And as I mentioned earlier, this could be really dangerous because if the inoculation process wasn't managed right, it could result in huge, devastating outbreaks of the disease. So at that time, Marblehead, which is about 16 miles northeast of Boston, right on the coast, sparked up their smokehouse again, clearly to smoke any travelers from Boston and to minimize the possibility of someone arriving and spreading smallpox in Marblehead. So Ashley Bowen is put in charge of the smokehouse, and he's paid to operate it, and he is a really, really industrious smoker, and he smokes everybody that comes his way. And he records it all in his diary, because luckily for us, he was a prolific diarist. But one Saturday night around midnight, a coach full of men, as Ashley put it, arrived at the Marblehead Gate from Boston, where, again, something like 8,000 people had been inoculated with smallpox. And Ashley approaches the carriage and kind of says to them immediately, very bluntly, you must be smoked. But these men do not submit to the smoking. And instead, in Ashley's words, they cause a hubbub at the gate. And there were probably, it seems like there were probably about six of these men from Boston, and Ashley manages to partially smoke a few of them, but there are two other men that won't even get out of the carriage at first. They totally refuse. So Ashley and his assistant are really struggling to control these men at the gate, and the men get very angry. 
Ashley ends up getting a couple of them in the smokehouse, but they refuse to stay in it. They won't let him shut the door. They come right out yelling, um, the quote, the old man has a hell. Let's see how he likes it. And it's funny because the allusion to hell in Ashley's journal is clearly a reference to what must have been like a ton of brimstone on the fire in the smokehouse. Um, the sulfur fumes just must have been really strong and overpowering. So they're threatening Ashley, and they kind of push him toward the smokehouse like they're going to smoke him. And ultimately, the men drag Ashley and his assistant away from the gate. They break open the, the lock on the gate, and they pass right through in their carriage. They roll right into Marblehead in the middle of the night without having been sufficiently smoked. And Ashley is so furious about this that at 6 a.m. the next morning, Sunday, he leaves the smokehouse and strides into town and reports the men to the town selectmen. How does this research help us understand the American Revolution better? You know, it's interesting. It makes me think of a conversation that I had with someone recently. And he said to me something like, you know, the the American Revolution seems so remote. It seems so far back in the past as to be just too distant to relate to. It's too inaccessible. And I thought to myself, wow, I don't feel like that at all. I never feel like that. And a lot of that might be due to growing up in the Boston area. You kind of feel like the revolution is all around you. Men from my hometown marched to Lexington and Concord on April 19th. And there are homes and cemeteries that date from this time. So, so many of the places still exist. And so it kind of doesn't feel very remote or inaccessible to me at all. But then you research a topic like smoking and, you know, with stuffing people into boxes and fumigating with things like brimstone, trying to contain disease. And that world, it, it does feel a little distant and inaccessible when you read um, accounts of this. So I, think, I would say that smoking teaches us a lot definitely about the fear of smallpox, how the threat of the disease was managed, how the health of the Continental Army was protected. But as I think kind of philosophically about this question, I think that despite all of our passion and study of the 18th century, I think it gives us a glimpse of just kind of how much of that world can disappear in time. And can recede into the past and what remains kind of unknowable to us uh, in the 21st century. Katie Turner-Getty, as always, thank you for joining us. Brady, thank you so much for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.